Well, amen. Children, you will find your words tonight. I double-checked. You'll find your words in the normal location in the bulletin tonight. Uh, I failed to bring those up here with me, so I'm not going to read those to you, but they are there. So uh, be listening for those. I want to begin tonight with a few questions, Um, uh, questions that I've been mulling over this week. How do we as Christians live in a culture in which uh, what is evil in the eyes of God is considered good and what is good in the eyes of God is considered evil? How do we, as, how do we live as Christians in a culture where people arbitrarily and capriciously and prejudicially determine what is right or wrong depending upon what best suits their own preferences and purposes? How do we live as Christians in a culture in which sin is treated psychologically rather than spiritually and needs to be nurtured, and they believe needs, it needs to be nurtured rather, uh, rather than mortified? How do we as Christians live in a culture in which retribution and retaliation and revenge rule the day? How do we live as Christians in a culture in which there is no hope, no grace, and no room for redemption, and where sins of our past are forever enshrined and used to cancel us? How do we live in a culture as Christians? How do, we, how do we as Christians live in a culture that rejects what's natural and rational and logical and demonizes what is practical and sensible and reasonable? How do we live as Christians in a culture in which the cause of all of our societal woes is considered to be outside of us, or believed to be outside of us, and all the cures or all the solutions are found inside of us. And how do we live as Christians in a culture that expects us to conform to the attitudes and positions and practices of their own, Right, of their attitudes, positions, and practices, and then uses the love of neighbor as a means to manipulate compliance. Well, I'd like to suggest tonight, as we think about those questions, I'd like to suggest that rather than waging war against the culture, and rather than battling adversarial individuals, rather than battling adversarial groups and organizations, and rather than seeking to change institutions. I believe our time would be better spent examining our own hearts and lives. I believe we'd be time better spent if we would make sure that we're conducting ourselves as we're called to within the community of faith. At the risk of oversimplifying it, I, I would suggest that we would begin by paying attention to ourselves. And I say that 
Because I believe that's what Jesus is doing here in Luke chapter 17. He himself has been talking, as those of you that have been with us throughout our study, you know, he's been talking, um, or he's been taking the Pharisees to task. He's been taking them to task over their pride and their hypocrisy and their legalism and their oppression and their love of money. And he has, right, and they believed they themselves were the ones who were going to enter into the narrow door. And he's been very pointed about the fact that they were wrong. And in Luke 17, he turns once again to address the disciples, right? He's been going back and forth with those who are following him on the way to Jerusalem. And he's turning now back from the Pharisees, he's turning back to the disciples. And as he does, he doesn't say, look, take up the banner, take up my cause and carry on my work. Continue to wage war against the prideful. Continue to wage war against the hypocrites. Continue to wage war against the legalists. It's time to topple the oppressive elitist structures. He doesn't say that. He says, pay attention to yourselves and don't do what they're doing. And he does that through an admonition, through an instruction, through an exhortation, and then through an illustration. And yes, that is our outline tonight. Um, how do we live as Christians in our culture? We're to live as disciples. We're to live as the kingdom citizens that we are. And as we're going to see, that life is simple, but it is not easy. As a matter of fact, it's very, very difficult. And actually, it's impossible apart from faith. And it's something that we can't do alone either. We need one another. So before we go any further, let's go to the Lord and prayer, uh, in prayer and ask Him to bless our study tonight. Father, by your Spirit, would you grant us, or grant, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word as we ask on a weekly basis, and give us all ears to hear and eyes to see, grant us the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and His gospel. We'd ask you to awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us, and then we would ask that you would refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. As always, I'm weak and needy to this task to which you've called me, and I am in need of your assistance. I am in need of grace if I'm going to do something good for you this evening. And so I'd ask that you would grant me that grace, you would grant me support and strength, that you would fill me with your Spirit. And it's for the sake of Christ and His church I ask these things. Amen. Well, let's jump right in and look at the first at the admonition in verse 1. Luke says, and, his, and he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Jesus, again, has been moving back and forth from those generally in the crowd or the crowd as a whole to the Pharisees to 
uh, to his disciples. And again, he turns back to his disciples, and the first thing that he says is he acknowledges the inevitability of temptation. He doesn't say if temptations come, he says when, uh, when they come, and when they are tempted, he has something to offer. And we know from Scripture and throughout Scripture that temptations come in many forms. They come from uh, things, come from within us, they come from outside us, and, and he here focuses on that which comes from outside of us. And he said that they would be tempted very specifically in terms of being enticed or lured to sin as if being baited in a trap. He also says they'd be tempted in terms of being tripped up by something that was put in their way and that would cause them to stumble. In other words, they were sure to encounter those who were going to entice them into sin and that, that sin was going to disrupt their fellowship with Christ. They were also going to encounter false teachers who were going to draw them away from their trust of Christ. And then, of course, they were, to, uh, they were sure to encounter persecution that would cause them to renounce their faith and forsake Christ. But then he says something very, very interesting. He said, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea, and he were cast into the sea, than, than he would should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. And there are two ways that we can take this. Uh, first, we can take this as a great encouragement. We can hear this as a great encouragement. Christ is protective of those who are His. He's not going to let anything happen or doesn't want anything happen to those who are His or His sheep. And anyone who causes one of his sin, or, or one of his uh, disciples, or one of his followers, or one of his children, or one of his sheep to sin, or doubt, or disbelieve, or forsake him, they will be dealt with harshly. He said it would be better for them to have a horrible and violent death than to do so. And then he says, pay attention to yourselves. And we hear that as a, in this case as an encouragement to make sure that they aren't falling for those who are placing before them the stumbling blocks or those who are baiting them or those who are false teaching. Don't, don't fall prey to them. Keep your ears open. Keep your eyes open to those around you. But second and, and more likely, we we can and should take this as an admonition. Right? It's, it's an admonition. It's a warning not to be the ones who are doing the enticing. It's a warning not to be the ones who are false teaching. It's, it's, it's to not be one of the ones who are, who are causing others to renounce their faith and to forsake Christ. Particularly those who are new or young in the faith, those who are vulnerable, those who are weak in their faith, those who are struggling with doubt, don't be the ones who are causing them to stumble. And of course, the first thing that came to my mind this week as I'm reading through this and thinking about this was the growing number of those who have joined in this 
fad or this faddish trend of deconstructing their faith, and who are tweeting and blogging and podcasting, telling others about their journeys in the hope of helping others to all do the same. They want others to join them in this path on their way to either atheism or to this to this new Christianity that doesn't look like any kind of biblical Christianity to speak of. But what they don't realize or simply don't believe or are dismissing is in the words of one commentator, it would be better for them to meet a certain and cruel death before they were the means of destroying the faith of a disciple of Jesus. It would be more preferable than to meet the judgment of God for such wickedness. It would be better to die the most horrific and gruesome death than to bring disaster on one of Jesus' disciples. But that's really too easy. And what I mean by that, it's, it's really too easy to decide or identify who the others are that are deserving of that woe. It's much more difficult to ask if we have been one of those. It's more difficult to ask if we've been one who has been the stumbling block, if we are the ones that have led others astray. I'm going to ask these questions in first person, but of course I'm going to come along at the end and ask, what about you? Have I ever set a bad spiritual example in my actions or attitudes? Has my complaining ever planted or watered a seed of discontent in the heart of someone else? Have I ever influenced someone's opinion by manipulation or for selfish gain? Have I provoked someone to sin in anger? Have I enticed someone to gossip or slander another? Gossip about or slander another? Have I been boastful of an accomplishment or of something that I've acquired that has caused someone else to be envious or to be boastful themselves? Have I not only failed to encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak, but have I caused further discouragement and doubt? Has my treatment of someone caused someone else or that someone to doubt the veracity of Scripture or to doubt my testimony as a follower of Christ? Have I not right, rightly divided the word of truth and taught something that is contrary to the faith once for all handed down to the saints? What about you? How would you answer those questions and others like them? And what questions do we need to add to the list? You see, we don't sin in a vacuum. Our sin doesn't just affect us. There are always others who are either participating with us or who are listening to us or who are watching us and observing as we're doing those things or they're observing the consequences when, 
when those things that are done in secret are eventually brought out into the open. And they're devastated. The bottom line is we have way, way too much time. Or we have, yeah, we have way too much to pay attention to regarding ourselves to keep us occupied. And to keep us out of the cultural war. Do we not? And fortunately, having, fortunately, having asked those hard questions and found ourselves to have fallen short, we have the opportunity to repent and to seek the forgiveness of the Lord and become more self-aware as we move forward by the grace of God. But that's where the instruction is so important. As believers, we're not called to live in isolation. We're not called to do this by ourselves. We, we are a part of a covenant community of faith. And so Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I, I repent, you must forgive him. Let's talk about the importance of rebuke first. You know, in the life of the church, there are times when someone experiences periods of spiritual weakness. They experience times when they find themselves overtaken by or overburdened by or overpowered by or overcome by sin. They lose their battle with the flesh and they fall prey to temptation. And it might be a one-time moral failure. Or it might be something that's ongoing and even habitual and something that they just they become entangled in and can't release themselves from. It may be something that they're aware of and can't get out of, or it may be something that they're blind to. They have no idea. And it needs to be brought to their attention. And when that happens, Jesus says they need to be rebuked. Or in other words, that sin needs to be pointed out. It needs to be brought to their attention. It needs to be brought out into the open. They need to be made aware of that sin and its damage. And then they they need to be called to repent of it. They need to be called to turn from it. And this isn't a a tongue lashing. It's, It's not a reaming out. It's an act of love. It's an act of love and it's to be done with understanding Because of the role reversal that's possible. In other words, the one that is at a current or at a point in time doing the rebuking may at one time be the rebukee. And that should change how we deliver it. As Augustine once said, there is no sin which any man has done, but another man may do the same. But rebuking isn't easy. If you've, ever, if you've ever attempted it, it isn't easy. And as a matter of fact, it's, it's very difficult, so difficult that we often choose not to do it. 
We choose the easy way out. But, but this is contrary to life in the community of faith. Daryl Bach puts it this way. He describes what he calls two fundamental relational commitments. He says, first, disciples are to share in each other's commitment to pursue righteousness. Thus, Jesus exhorts disciples to rebuke a believer who sins, not because he wishes them to meddle in the affairs of others, but because he wishes the community to desire righteousness that results in accountability to one another in the way they walk. And then he says, second, disciples are not to pursue their spirituality in isolation from one another. For for Jesus, he says, faith is not merely a private affair, but something the community pursues together. The community of believers is a family in the sense that the best interest of each member is a concern for each other member. Thus, the call to rebuke is the exercise of familial responsibility. And he concludes by saying this, the assumption in all of this is that disciples have a certain quality in their relationships that allow this type of positive, honest, loving, confronting behavior to occur without destroying their relationships. But Jesus not only calls them to rebuke, he calls them to forgive when the one who is rebuked seeks repentance. And and he doesn't say just forgive them once, but repeatedly, over and over and over and over again. And it's not a recommendation for the sake of psychological well-being on the part of the one rebuking and being rebuked. It's an imperative for the spiritual sake of both the one rebuking and the one being rebuked. Sin is not to be held over or held against anyone. When someone acknowledges, owns, or expresses remorse for their sin, they're to be forgiven. There's no retaliation. There's no revenge. There's no seeking of restitution. We pay the debt they owe ourselves, and we do that by not expecting them to. And just as there is no sin, you've heard me say on multiple occasions, just as there is no sin so great that it can't be forgiven by God, there is no sin so great that we can't and should not forgive. And again, this is easier said than done, is it not? Listen to these words of Dale Ralph Davis. He says, our problem with Jesus' words here is that we are often too spineless to rebuke and too resentful to forgive. Jesus requires of us both courage to rebuke and compassion to forgive. The Christian life, as usual, demands both guts and goodness. Jesus is assuming that the church is a sinful people. This is great. Jesus is assuming that the church is a sinful people, folks who need to practice rebuking, repenting, and forgiving. And I'll add to that, over and over and over again. 
And of course, you know what I'm going to say. We desperately need to be this kind of community that practices all three. It needs to be a part of who we are, particularly in light of the culture in which we live. A culture that downplays and ignores sins on the one hand, and then at the same time seeks endless retribution and reparations for offenses of others. Our culture is, is simultaneously conciliatory and quick to cancel. It just makes our heads spin. So we're called to both rebuke and forgive within the context of the community of faith. And our rebuking is to be done gently and humbly and affectionately and prayerfully. And our repenting is to be done genuinely. And our forgiving is to be done repeatedly. And this doesn't mean that people aren't to be held accountable for their actions. It doesn't mean that justice doesn't have its proper place. And it doesn't mean that, um, that trust that's been destroyed doesn't take time to be built back. But it does mean that we are to be in the business of restoring those who fall. And we do that for one another, for the sake of one another, and for the sake of Christ. And as we do so, I believe it's definitely countercultural. And as we continue to be countercultural and we continue to shine in such a way that others see our good works, the Bible tells us that we will glorify God and others will glorify God. And I believe as we're countercultural and as we practice those things and as other people witness, us doing those three things repeatedly, rebuking and repenting and forgiving, that they will seek to want to be a part of the community of faith that offers that because the world does not. The question is, what enables us to do both? Right? What... The daunting commands to rebuke and forgive. We, we cannot do those things in and of ourselves. We can't do them in our own power. It's impossible to obey. So we need help. And the disciples knew that. That's why they jump right in and they say in verse 5, Increase our faith. Help. They knew that in and of themselves they lacked what was necessary. And so they call out to Jesus for that which they believed they needed. But let's look very carefully at what they're actually saying. Notice their focus was on their faith, and not just their faith, but the size of their faith. They were actually, they were focusing on the size or quantity of their faith. They were actually trusting in their faith, to do what Jesus had asked them to do. In other words, their faith was in their faith. Not the one who was to be the object of their faith. And we know that because of how Jesus responds. He says, and the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. A mustard seed was the smallest seed known, and a mulberry tree had a root system that would keep trees immovable and around for 600 years. And so his point 
was that they were more concerned with the greatness of their faith than they were the exceeding greatness of their God. Again, listen to Ralph Davis. He says, a request for increased faith could be unfaithful. Now, hang, hang in there with me for just a minute. He says, what makes all the difference is the object of our faith, not the quantity of faith. For faith, by definition, clings to God, casts itself upon God's power, rests in God's strength, and relies upon God's adequacy. And honestly, if we put our faith in our faith, we're only putting our trust in ourselves and we're pushing God to the side and treating Him as if He's irrelevant. But when we place even the smallest amount, even the tiniest amount of faith, when we place it in Him, we find we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. including rebuking and forgiving one another. And as we put the smallest amount of faith into practice, as we trust Him, as we trust in His Word, as we believe it and trust it and put it into practice, and we see the effects that it produces, what happens? Our faith increases. Our faith is strengthened. The truth is, in, even in the most difficult of moments, even when our faith is at its weakest and our doubt is at its strongest, and it feels as though we're clinging to God by our fingernails, because we're clinging to an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, ever-present, all-sufficient One who sent His Son to redeem us and make us His own, we're immovable. He's not only promised to never let us go, He's doing that which in us, uh, within us that's, that's in our best interests, and He's sanctifying us, and He's conforming us into the image of Christ. He's, he's the one who's faithful and remains constant even in the midst of our wavering, even in the midst of our doubt, even in the midst of our lack of faithfulness. And He's the one that, whose commands are holy, righteous, and good. And so when we think about who He is, when it comes to forgiving and rebuking, or rebuking and forgiving, or any command of the Lord for that matter, Anything that He sets before us, we're to look to Him and not ourselves. And like Augustine prayed, we, we could pray as well. He said, on, our, on your exceedingly great mercy rests all my hope. Give what you command and then command whatever you will. In other words, Father, our hope is in you. Command us to do what you want us to do. And then grant us the grace to do what it is you ask. That's faith in God, not ourselves. Well, in verses 7 to 10, Jesus ties everything together with an illustration. 
He says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And for the sake of time, I, I just want to summarize it this way. That this call that he has placed before us to not be a stumbling block and to, re, and to rebuke and to forgive are commands for us to obey as bondservants of Christ. In Paul's words, we have been, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We are his. And that price has been the imperishable blood of Christ. Therefore, the commands he gives are to be followed. The commands we're given are not negotiable. Our obedience is not a part of this transactional relationship in which he asks us to do those things and we do them and then somehow we earn his favor or we, we merit his favor or in some ways that, that our position before him is solidified. We don't merit his favor. We don't, we don't even pay off the debt we owe him. Right? Our salvation is not based upon a debtor's ethic. Our obedience is simply a response. And it's a, a responsibility that we have to fulfill as a believer. We're simply doing what's required as a disciple. God doesn't owe you or me anything for our obedience. Our obedience is owed to Him as our Savior and Redeemer. And our obedience is an act of gratitude. It's an act of gratitude for what He has done for us in and through Christ. And so it's a pleasure. It's not a burden. But here's the rub. We aren't always able to say we have only done what is our duty. We can at times, and when we do so, we're actually giving credit to God for the grace that He's bestowed upon us that gives us the desire and the ability to do what it is He asks of us. But unfortunately, we can't say that honestly all the time. We unfortunately fall short of our duty as servants of His. And quite honestly, we must admit that we do far less for Him than what He deserves as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But here's the good news. Right, the good news is that the forgiveness that He calls us to, He Himself extends to us. He does not call us to do anything that He has not been willing to do or in fact does. When we repent of our sins, He is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He doesn't hold our sin against us. He casts it as far away from us as the east is from the west. And it's out of that overflow of abundant forgiveness that we in turn are able to not only forgive others, 
but to continue to strive to do all that he's commanded us to do. And when we fall short, we don't give up, but we repent, and we receive the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And we continue to live the lives, continue to strive to live the lives that we've been called to. Lives worthy, we strive to live lives worthy of our calling. Right in that repetitive practice within our body of rebuking, repenting, and forgiving. Well, as I said last week, the celebration of Christmas is really about the depth of our depravity and the length to which God has gone and was willing to go to save sinners like us. That's what we're celebrating. And I would encourage you this week, as you go to your various places and at various times and you give and exchange gifts, that as you do, that you would remember that the child whose birth we celebrate was the eternal son who was given by the Father so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our salvation is the greatest gift that we could ever receive, and it's received by faith, which, by the way, is also a gift. So thanks be to God that the giver of every good and perfect gift, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him, and Him alone be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Glorious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word with faith and love? Would you lay it up on our hearts and practice it in our lives? Water the hearts of those who've heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For your glory... And for our good and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray these things. Amen.